Greetings, everyone. I hope those of you who have been keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread had a edifying and meaningful feast. Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is one of the feasts of God that helps us learn about not only our lessons about our, our personal relationship with God, but also God's purpose and plan for mankind and how he's working that out in a step-by-step -step fashion as revealed through the cycle of the holy days and what they mean. Let's go ahead and begin the service with prayer, and then we'll get into the sermon. Father in heaven, great God and creator, we thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the truth that you've given us and for the fact that uh, you have developed a plan for placing children into your kingdom and human beings have been created for that purpose, as amazing as that is. We pray, Father, that you'll help us to learn lessons we need to learn about how to fulfill our purpose for existence as being sons and children in your kingdom, daughters, sons, whichever, although I'm not sure how that, that uh, will be differentiated, differentiated in the kingdom, but at any rate, it doesn't matter what our sex is. We have the same potential and the same destiny if we remain faithful. And so we pray, Father, that you'll inspire and guide the service this afternoon, guide this sermon, not only the speaking, but also the hearing. We pray that you'll help us to learn from it what you want us to learn. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We might ask, why did God command us to put leaven out of our lives and keep it out during the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, it was because in doing so, God intended that we learn spiritual lessons as we're to do with all of the feasts. And in the Bible, leaven is used to picture sin. Putting leaven out during the feast pictures putting sin out of our lives. And it's intended to focus our minds on the process of overcoming sin and the sinful tendencies of the human flesh. However, if we limit our focus exclusively on the idea of putting leaven out and what it pictures, which is putting sin out, we're only seeing part of the picture that God wants us to see. We're missing vital lessons concerning how to deal with sin and what God wants us to become. In order for us to overcome our fleshly nature, it must be replaced with a different nature. That is the nature of God, the divine nature. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore purge out the old eleven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what does it mean to keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth? This is what I want to discuss in today's sermon. Let's begin by looking at the old leaven that we're to put out. Malice and wickedness is what we're told to put out, the leaven that we're told to put out of our lives in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Malice is from the Greek word kakia, and it implies a depraved or corrupt mind characterized by malice, malignity, ill will, or wickedness. And it refers to the intrinsic depravity and malignant destructiveness of our fleshly nature. Wickedness is translated from the Greek word aponeria, and it refers more to the effects of our corrupt nature, the sins which flow from that nature and their effects, which encompasses every sort of calamity of evil and sickness. Now, most of us don't like to think of ourselves as characterized by a malignantly evil and sinful nature, yet from God's viewpoint, that's the kind of nature that we have apart from God. While we are born innocent of any sin, we're also born with a natural mind which tends to be drawn along by fleshly desires, which are often lustful and lawless desires. And our natural fleshly minds are also easily deceived and led astray. According to scripture, the human heart is naturally deceitful and wicked. Notice in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Solomon affirmed that the natural human heart tends toward evil when he wrote in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 3, this is an evil that uh, in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Jesus said to his disciples that their hearts were evil, or that I should say that evil was a part of their nature. And uh, he said in Matthew chapter 7 and beginning of verse 9, speaking to his disciples, he said, What man is there among you if his son asked for bread will give him a stone, or if he asked for a fish will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So notice then Jesus said to his disciples, if you then being evil, speaking of the corrupt nature that we all have as fleshly human beings, Jesus said, we human beings are defiled by the nature of what comes out of our hearts. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse 20, Matthew 7 and verse 20, he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. All humans other than Jesus Christ, sin and fall short of the glory of God. As we read in Romans 3, beginning in verse 9, Romans 3 and verse 9, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, sin tells us, or excuse me, the law tells us what sin is. It defines sin. It tells us what is 
lawful and what is good and what is sinful or contrary to God's will. So we know what is sin because the law tells us. The law tells us thou shalt not commit adultery and that tells us that adultery is sin. And the other things that are forbidden in God's law are sin, are all sins. But it goes on to say in verse 23, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all sin and we fall short of the glory of God and we're faced with the problem of human nature as fleshly human beings. To overcome our fleshly nature requires a transformation of our minds, which is beyond our capability to accomplish on our own or by ourselves. In Romans 8, beginning with verse 6, Romans 8, beginning with verse 6, Paul wrote, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, now that carnal mind simply means fleshly, the mind which we are all born with, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So on our own resources alone, based on our own nature, we cannot please God. And that is true even if we come to the point where we consent to the law of God that it is good. Our sinful nature leads us into evil. In Romans 7, beginning with verse 14. Romans 7, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, Paul is speaking here as one in a state where he is, has not been converted, where he has not yet received the Holy Spirit. And he's describing the fleshly mind, the fleshly mind of one who has come to understand that God's law is good and agrees with God's law, and yet is helpless to actually put it into practice as God would have us do. And so he goes on to say, for what I am doing, verse 15, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If I then, if, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, in my fleshly nature, nothing good dwells for to will is present with me to will to once want to do right but how to perform what is good i do not find for the good that i will to do i do not and so it's no longer i who do it but sin that dwells in me i find that then that a law I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, 
but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now, this law, this law of sin that he speaks of in verses 23 and 25 is a natural law built into our nature like the law of gravity built into the creation which, by which two material bodies are drawn together. And the law of sin is a term Paul uses for the pulls of the flesh which naturally draw us into sin. And as is mentioned here, we have to be delivered from that law of sin. We have to be, be delivered from our own fleshly nature. And so to put out that fleshly nature, that nature characterized by malice and wickedness, something else must replace it. Now, when you fill a room with light, you drive out the darkness. And in the same way, to the extent that our minds are filled with the spirit of sincerity and truth, we are able to overcome malice and wickedness. Sincerity, as found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, is translated from the Greek word elekrineia, and it means purity or genuineness. It implies that which is pure as pure gold, which is which is without dross, without any impurities. It implies that which has been shifted, clean, uh, uh, sifted, cleansed, or purified to the point where no corrupt element remains. It implies that which can withstand the judgment of the brightest sunlight. Sincerity implies that our thoughts, deeds, and motives are such as they can withstand being judged in the purest light. In order to strive to live with such purity and genuineness, we have to constantly examine ourselves in the light of God's word. And we're found that God's word can expose to us where we are falling short. In Hebrews 4 and verse 12, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, it says, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is able to look into our hearts and minds and discern what motivates us. And that same word of God, as we apply it in our lives, as we focus on it and, and examine ourselves in the light of God's word can help us to discern what is impure, what is not fitting, and what needs to be changed. James wrote in James chapter 1, beginning with verse 21, James 1 verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, 
which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. Moreover, as we examine ourselves in the light of God's word, we need to be praying and asking God earnestly to show us what is corrupt, and we need to ask him to cleanse and purify us. In Psalm 19, we read a, a prayer, a psalm that uh, actually is a description of uh, how God's word can help us to come to understand ourselves and our own nature and help to purify us. In verse 7, this is Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired of they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth be, uh, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So notice here in this psalm is a prayer to keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and not allow sin to have dominion over me. And it speaks of the word of God and different uh, aspects of God's word, the commandments and so forth, and how they can instruct us and guide us and how we need to change what we need. Living in purity, sincerity, and genuineness goes hand, hand in hand with living in truth. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, Peter writing to the church said, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another with a pure heart. Jesus confirmed that the word of God is truth. When he said in his prayer to the Father in John 17 and verse 17, your word is truth. And he also said in John 14 and verse 6, I, meaning I, Jesus Christ, am the way, the truth, and the life. To live in the truth is to imitate Christ's example. The example of loving our brothers, among other things. And we read in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3, 1 John 2 and verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. 
he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. In other words, what he's saying is that God's word is our commandment. We're to live by every word of God. So he says, first, he's not writing a new commandment to them, but an old commandment because we're to live by every word of God. And that's always been the case that we've, we are to live as Jesus said elsewhere, we're to live by every word of God, which is a command found in the Old Testament and it's always applied. But he says in verse eight again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light. There is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So we are to walk according to God's word, live according to God's word, be guided in our conduct and our thinking by the word of God, but it goes beyond that where to ex express God's word through love toward others and especially the brethren in the church, but that could be extended to others as well. Jesus told us we're to love even our enemies. We're also told that we must confess and forsake our sins. Human beings naturally find it difficult to admit when they're wrong. We don't like to admit that we're wrong about something usually, but we're told in scripture that we must confess our sins to God. We have to go to God when we've recognized we've done something wrong and we should confess it. In Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So we're not only to confess our sins, we are to forsake them. We're to repent of our sins and strive to overcome. In 1 John 1, beginning with verse 5, John wrote, 1 John 1 and verse 5, this is, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, in other words, if we think that we are perfect and, and we've got it made and we have no sin, nothing further to change in our lives or repent of it says if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us none of us has yet reached spiritual perfection and we're not going to as long as we're in this flesh jesus christ was perfect but we're not we still must strive daily to overcome our carnal nature and to put sin out of our lives and so that means that we 
have to go to God daily and confess our sins as we strive diligently to overcome and keep sin out of our lives. It goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Jesus Christ laid down his life to save our lives and the lives of all who believe in him with genuine faith. Likewise, we also must be willing to sacrifice some of our own comforts and material goods for the benefit of others when there's genuine need. And I'm not talking about just things that people might want or demand of us, but I'm speaking of genuine needs that we might be able to help someone with. One of the things that we as a church have to offer more than anything is the truth to help people to understand what God's will is, what the teachings of God's word actually are. John wrote in 1 John 3 and verse 16, 1 John 3 and verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So if we see a genuine need and we have the capability to help, then we have an obligation to do that. But as I said, the main way that we can help as far as our church is concerned is to make the gospel message available to as many people as possible. Now, David was a man after God's own heart, but he too had human nature, of course. And at one point he allowed his carnality to lead him into grievous sins, committing adultery with another man's wife and then arranging to have the man murdered to cover up the sin. And on being confronted with his sin by Nathan, one of God's prophets, David acknowledged it and deeply repented of it. He understood that removing his sin and his sinfulness required the active intervention of God. So he prayed for God to help him to repent in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, where his prayer after this sin was after he came to acknowledge this sin and this is a recording of his prayer and we begin with verse 5 he said behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me behold you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom purge me with hyssop now hyssop was uh, was a plant which by which the blood of sacrifices was sprinkled and what it's speaking of is the sprinkling of the blood of a sacrifice and and ultimately it applies to the sacrifice of jesus christ it is speaking of of the blood of our savior christ 
he says, purge me with hyssop or with the blood of Christ, we might interject here, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my, all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and a stead, and, and a, uh, renew a steadfast spirit within me. So David asked God to create in him a clean heart to renew the right kind of spirit in him because he knew that he'd gone astray. And he asked God, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. In the Old Covenant, Israel was given the form of knowledge and truth, as we read in Romans 2 and verse 20, the form of knowledge and truth, but most of the Israelites were actually never converted. They had been given the laws of God, and they had entered into a covenant with God, and those laws were written on tablets of stone and on parchment, but most of, for most of them, it was not written in their hearts and minds. Under the new covenant, God through his spirit tells us that he will write his divine law in our hearts as we yield to his spirit. And that's the main difference between the old and new covenants, actually. Now, that's not that Israelites could not be converted. They could be if they truly repented of their sins. Unfortunately, most of them did not. But in Hebrews 10 and verse 16, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So we have here God's laws, the very commandments that God gave to the people of Israel when he entered into the old covenant with them, those same laws are to be written in our hearts and minds so that we obey them from the heart and our sins and lawless deeds are forgiven, are hidden from God's sight. As we put the leaven out of our lives symbolically by taking the leaven out of our homes and, and taking the leaven products out of our homes, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we replaced that with, with uh, the unleavened bread, the bread which has no leaven, uh, leavening, we are admonished in Scripture to put off the old man because, because the unleavened bread is symbolic of a, our fleshly nature. I should say the leavened bread is... is uh, symbolic of our fleshly nature with the leaven of sin. The unleavened bread is picturing what we are to become and what we are to put on. So we're admonished in scripture to put off the old man, to put off the old man with, its, with his sins, sinful nature, and be renewed spiritually and to have a different nature. In Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 22, 
Ephesians 4 and verse 22, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Have a different spirit motivating and guiding you. Put on the new man which was created according to God and true righteousness and holiness. As God works with us through his spirit, he is creating in us something new, a different kind of you, so to speak. And that new man is being created in true righteousness and holiness, it goes on to say. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. So notice it's talking about a different kind of behavior. Behaving in, in many ways opposite to what we might have done before. It goes on to say that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which, as it should be, you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, so to speak. We're to imitate Christ. We're to ask Christ to live in us through his spirit. Paul wrote in Romans 13, beginning with verse 12. Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. In other words, we're to put on Christ, meaning we're to, uh, to open our hearts and minds to God's word and to his spirit, and we're to ask Christ to live in us and to uh, give us his nature. To walk in truth, let us draw near to God in faith as we are admonished in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are admonished to seek those things which are above, that is, of God, and forsake the works of the flesh. In Colossians 3 and verse 1, beginning with verse 1, we read Colossians 3 verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And actually, that's not really a proper translation because of the uh, Greek tense that this is in, the arrowist tense. The Concordant Version states it this way, stripping off the old man. You not have put off the old man, but we are in the process of doing that. We're to be stripping off or putting off the old man with his deeds. This is an ongoing process. And have put on, or, or again, better translated, we're to be putting on the new man who is renewed or being created in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And again, this should be of him who creates or is creating him. Jesus Christ is creating in us a new man, a new you, so to speak. And he is doing it according to the image of Christ. That is, we are being remade. We are to be in the process of being remade according to the image of Jesus Christ, who, if we repent, if we cooperate, if we yield to him, he is making us over in his image as we submit to him and do these things that we're instructed to do here, putting off these things and, and putting on a different kind of character and nature. goes on to say, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. These fleshly differences that we have from one from the other fade into the background as we become one body in Christ where all of us together are in Christ and he in us and we take on his image and likeness. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, 
even as Christ forgave you, or as it should be actually, as Christ forgives you, because he not only forgave us, but he forgives us on an ongoing basis as we go to him in repentance, seeking his mercy and forgiveness. And so we're to be forgiving one another, as it says, so you also must do, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So let's be studying God's word. Let's let God teach us what we need to change to become more like Christ. Let's Ask God to give us clean hearts and clean minds. Seek those things which are above. Ask God to fill your mind abundantly with sincerity and truth.